This is Kevin. And this is Ron. And this episode of Your Valuable Home is brought to you by Provia. Provia, a faith-based company that makes entry doors, storm doors, patio doors, vinyl and wood-clad vinyl windows, vinyl siding, manufactured stone, and metal roofing, all of incomparable quality. Welcome to Your Valuable Home, the weekly podcast for listeners who believe that residential real estate is the way to build wealth. Hi, I'm Kevin Kennedy, a working contractor and host of Your Valuable Home. Your Valuable Home is for homeowners and investors alike who want to acquire and improve real estate based upon educated decisions. And I'm Ron Milk, Your Valuable Home producer and co-host. Our weekly one-hour podcast is not about doing it yourself. It's about hiring the right contractor to do the right job at the right price. And it's not about flipping. It's about buying and holding to build wealth. Homeowners and investors strive to create wealth and financial freedom with real estate and avoid costly home improvement mistakes. Your valuable home is for you. The Project Replay made redoing our kitchen and bath trouble-free. Your horror stories have kept us from hiring the wrong contractors. The college segments have taught us how to keep toxins out of our home, what to look for in replacement windows, how to borrow sensibly against home equity, and more. College teaches investors like me how to freshen up my rentals without spending a fortune. Their suggestions are great for ROI. It's time for Your Valuable Home. Okay, Kev, another show and another replay, and we're going to be talking about insulation. It was over the past weekend. I was down at the Shore House, and with the economy going the way it is, with the fuel costs, everything skyrocketing cost, I figured, what is the best way for homeowners to really get a big bang for their buck? Insulate the attic. The money they're going to save if it's well under-insulated, they'll pay itself off within a year or two. Me being a contractor, not thinking, I'm like, well, you know what, I'm not down the Shore House in the winter months. We're never there. But the bills were getting a little high over the past winter. So it wasn't well-insulated? No, no. Now we did the siding, we did the windows. It's extremely well insulated there. We did the foam board insulation. I put new windows in, foam, it's airtight, it's great. But the insulation in the attic was only R19, which is very minimal insulation. But when the house was built in 2000, it was probably the code back then, or they could have thought of, hey, it's a, a shore house. Not many people are down there. But with that, I said, oh, you know, I've got to make a, a change. I very rarely go up there. And I had to. Well, maybe they weren't checking code back in those days. Yeah. I, well, they had the straps when we were doing the siding. They had everything done up to code for the last couple of years. But what they didn't have was the proper insulation. And that's for code today. See, when people see this big bat of insulation at the box door and it's 18 inches high and it says R49 on it, that's minimal requirements for insulation. When people look at how great that is. It's not. It's the minimal coverage. You can go up to R50 or 60 or 70. More you put in without covering off the areas that where your roof needs to be breathable, you can put as much insulation as you want because more insulation is the better it is going to be for you. What it's doing is, say in your attic, you're upstairs. It's keeping the upstairs cooler because it's keeping the cool air in, but that attic gets very hot from the sun. The shingles heat up and it's generating a lot of heat. And that heat will start to penetrate through that insulation. More insulation, more resistance. It's not going to swelter through that upper stairs layer. So that's what you really have to look at is trying to keep that element that's inside the house. You're insulating inside the house. What inside the house is generating the hot and cold is from your mechanical unit, whether you have a HVAC with heat pump, gas, oil. That's what that insulation is really meant to do is to keep that air that's being conditioned to that temperature. Mm -hmm. And you're trying to keep the outside element from fighting those two parts together. More insulation, the better it is. Okay. 
The only reason I brought it up because I was down there and then somebody was asking me about, hey, what are some great return on the investments that I can put on for the winter? And I said, hiring the right company to insulate your house. Now, some companies will tell you, hey, listen, we're going to get this great uh, foam insulation, which is great, but you got to look at the return cost of that. Some people are looking to sell the house quickly. So I don't know if you're going to get a return investment into that where somebody's going to come out and foam because it's so expensive. What you're looking to spend to get that optimal result where you can get the best return on your investment. See, a lot of people think it's got to be that you got to spend that money. And I hear the commercials. I'm sure you hear them right about now in the wintertime across the country. People are talking about, hey, I just saved myself thousands of dollars of insulation cost from my house. And they don't tell you how big the house is, how old the house is. Somebody has got a 1960 house is not going to see that big return on the investment. And also last year, listen to those advertisement. What was the temperature last year? So the one they were talking about two years ago, it was freezing in this part of the area of the country. Last year was beautiful. Yeah. But I still had rising costs. So the cost of gas, because we're, we're gas down the shore, is fluctuating, but it's still in, up. It's going a little, little lot, little, little lot. And when I looked at the last bill, the rate out there were charging was pretty high. So I decided to make that change to insulate. Now I'm doing it myself because I'm a contractor. People can't do that. But what they really need to do is when you're hiring the right contractors to make sure you know what they're getting. So there's blown in insulation. Well, blown in insulation is nice, but you got to make sure the areas by the soffit are covered. Is one better than the other or basically the same? I mean, they're basically the same. Yeah. As long as you put the adequate amount in. So we had a lot of few complaints. I remember the last couple of years, people talking about the companies that were blowing in the installation, but not giving them what they paid for. Well, here's another thing that I would recommend that nobody ever talks about is that this blown insulation is great. I mean, it does its job, but think about the future. I've never heard any show or anybody ever talk about is that because I'm doing the work, when you get that blown in insulation, somebody sells you this bat of goods, it's going to be the greatest thing. Think about what you're going to do in the upstairs. Yeah, bathrooms. Do you have a master bedroom? If you're, say, the bathrooms, you're looking to replace in a year or two, and I've got to come in and I got to strip that bathroom out. When I take the drywall down, all that ins- blown insulation just it's going drops. To go all- the only reason why I say that is just because I'm the one that having to redo it. It is a mess to clean that stuff up. Just thinking ahead if you're going to be doing something like that. One thing I don't like about some of the foam things is sometimes they don't get in the cavities. There could be some blocks in the cavities and that's something they can't guarantee. You know, getting the best results out of it. I always say there's these uh, machines that can tell the hot and cold, but if you point it at the wall, it will tell you in the wintertime when you look at it, it'll say if it's a register and it's 60 degrees, 64 degrees or 70 degrees, just make sure you know your areas. I mean, the middle here in, in Pennsylvania, which we're going off of IRC, International Resident Code is 2018, is an R49, the equivalent of an R49 insulation. Mm-hmm. So the blown in is going to be a little bit thicker than that. So you're going to be much more insulation looking in the attic. One thing you don't want to do is if we're at the minimum code that that R49 is that people like to put plywood up in their attic, but you cannot crush that stuff. I mean, I remember the ones when we were doing the my first house and uh, my wife came up and she said, oh, listen, yeah, we're putting the new windows in. And I gave her a bat of insulation. Back then you used to cut the insulation in the 90s and you put enough in around the window, whatever you cut. So if you cut a sliver of it says R19, that's for six inch walls. It's got to be a one inch sliver to go in one inch cavity for a six inch wall. Well, she stuck the whole bat in one window, which that would create sweating. It's unbreathable and it's just going to mold up. You don't want that happening. So that's why I said when people think about doing it themselves, hire a professional company to do it because it really isn't that expensive. We just had it done for the job on Mike and Michelle's house that we were working on and it was great. It came in, they insulated and it was very reasonable for a company to do it. And if you get prices based upon that, knowing what you're going to be getting, but these are some of the things you got to look at is what they're going to be doing and what the amount of insulation is really needs to be specified in that contract when you do sign with your insulating contractor. Okay, It's just something where I tell people, listen, if I'm going to do your siding, I'm doing your windows. The best insulation that I could possibly give you is not what I'm going to do on the windows and walls. It's up in your attic. And people are like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, well, I give an example. Which way does hot air go? Up. So why don't we start with up and then work our way out? Mm-hmm. 
because that's just the way it's going to be. Or if you have, a lot of people talk to me about in the summertime, you're like, I think we need to do something. The, the air conditioner is not working too well. I said, well, let's talk about what not is happening. So I said, if the air conditioner is blowing, put your hand over the vent and see if you're getting air coming out. Then you can look at the return vent to make sure there's enough return, which means when mechanical works, it's pushing air into the house that's being conditioned. Then it's taking the air that's not being conditioned on the other side, returning it back into the mechanical unit and then regenerating it to get to that cold element with the air conditioning, taking the moisture out, the humidity out, all that stuff's got to be in the process. Right, right. But then I said, well, let's look at the insulation in your attic. If you're feeling that much heat coming down into the second floor in your upstairs bedrooms, let's look at the attic because that's where you, if you're ever been in an attic one it's in the dead of the summer <laughs> real hot real hot so apparently you have it i probably don't have i'm thinking I'm, as you're talking i'm thinking about my attic because i have i have the attic over the garage i've got the attic up near my work area too i don't think there's a lot of insulation up there either what i've seen sometimes is that once the insulation inspection's done and if they have to do a repair from the contractor or the builder if they take that insulation out those subs aren't putting it back in I've seen it a couple of times where we actually did some kitchens over where there was missing three or four bays where they were running wires up or running something up because they couldn't get through that insulation. So they cut a sliver out the bottom, slid the whole insulation piece out so they can get their stuff up in there. Well, that's not the right thing to do if you're being a contractor because it's not helping the homeowner out in the long run. Now you had to spend money to re-insulate, get it cleaned up, and now you're starting to see a difference. And that's what really brought to the attention of why not do a show about insulation and how important it is and hiring the right contractor to do it's really important because there's a lot of scam artists. They just want to sell you and they want to sell you this foam, which is one of the greatest things. It does work, but you got to look at the cost of that foam. What is your return on your investment? So if you have a house built, say, from 1990 and on, I can't see it being a great investment. Is it going to be better? Yes. But that amount of money you're paying that company to do it. What is that return on the investment? So I'm not trying to put down foam companies here, but I've yet to see any company that say, well, you're going to see double the result or triple the result on a newer home. It's not going to happen. The only thing it does help is that a lot of the newer homes today, because they've been built with uh, like a Tyvek house wrap, air infiltration is one of the biggest components of killing the R value, the insulation value. So if you have air blowing inside your house or blowing in a wall cavity because of the big the hole in the wall. Tyvek should solve that problem, right? Correct. Okay. And that's what really eliminated a lot of that mm -hmm. spray foam. So if your house didn't have Tyvek or a home wrap on it, that spray foam that's where the big bonus is you're going to get that so i just wanted to let that my listeners know that it's not i'm against it i'm just telling you that there's better ways of doing it if you're looking at new siding and you know your siding's 35 years old and you got to do it and you want to put some foam board insulation on and one thing you're going to need is a house rep that stops the air from blowing in and that will create that air cavity that you're going to not have an issue where you do not need to get spray foam in the walls insulation is probably the best thing you can do to really cut the cost down and it'll pay itself off okay yeah, a year good, good advice what are the latest scams and shakedowns? Let's find out with Ron and Kevin. It's the Bad Guy Bulletin. All right, Ron, now it is time for the Bad okay. Guy Bulletin. Okay. And it's only getting worse. You had a lot of them over the past year. A lot of scams, a lot of phone I calls. I still get them. Well, now I see it's coming all over the place. So I got two of them that just came in. One of my providers for gas down Atlantic City, a South Jersey gas, and they put a little word out saying, hey, listen, we got a scam that's going on. People knocking at your door saying they work for them. South Jersey gas did a great job to let homeowners know that if they just somebody knocking at your door without scheduling anything from an email from them, don't let them in your house. So that was one of the scams that just came out. But there was another one that just happened in my development. I know I talked to you about it, Ron, is AI. Everybody talks about the future and how great AI, AI, AI is going to be. AI is going to be a disaster. Right. And I did did speak to somebody who just got ripped off for $60,000. We just got into talking and again, they don't want to mention their name. And I said, that's fine. But it's just trying to get the information out to our listeners to have them understand that 
how authentic it sounded. They said it sounded like their grandson made a call. They got in a car accident and everything that the grandson sounded like them, asked all the right questions. They were answered. Everything was just perfect. Then a lawyer got on saying, listen, we have a situation. It's a high profile case. There was a miscarriage and everything going on and they're going to jail, but we're trying to get them out on bail. It's $60,000 for the bail. So if you like, uh, we'll have somebody come over. If you want to start to get the money together, we'll send uh, somebody over to get them out. And then I'll start the process with the courts. And well, they actually went and started getting the money out of the bank account. And somebody did show up at their house and take the money. Little did they know it was a scam. So they're out $60,000 because there's police all over my neighborhood. Yeah, they're getting more complicated now. And as AI develops, I mean, how do you know who you're talking to? It could be a relative. You know, there's been a scam with somebody calling and saying, I really need money. Can you send me some money? Now you can do it over Facebook or something like that with a picture of the person. And it looks like the real deal. Mm -hmm. So watch out, people. It's coming your way. Technology is great. Until it isn't. That is correct. There you go. So I got one here. I've got, well, I actually got two. And one comes from Mark Ferber in the Bucks County DA's office. He couldn't do, he had a day off. He's going to do something with his children today. But he sent this to me. This is really horrible. This is one in the making right now. This, the cops are looking for this guy in Bucks County. Started with a simple phone call, but ended with nearly $50,000 taken from her accounts. 69-year-old woman. She got a call from someone claiming to be from her bank last Friday, advising her to assist their fraud department. The caller advised her to go back to the bank and transfer $48,500 to a specified account, which she did. The woman was also told by the same caller to make a Venmo payment of $399 for an Etsy purchase. The total loss to her was $48,899. And I'll tell you, anyone in Bucks County, contact 215-249-9191. They're looking for this person right now. This is live. That's one from the Bucks County DA's office. And the second one, I'm looking at a picture of this guy right now. He's scaring me just sitting here. It says a story about a home improvement contractor that's been convicted of ripping off nine homeowners in Bucks County and Montgomery County. That's in Pennsylvania. Tens of thousands of dollars of work he never completed. And I'm going to read this one paragraph here and leave it at that. Victims included a Bristol Township man who hired, and again, this is in Pennsylvania, in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, for a $120,000 home improvement project, which was never completed and left his home in an unlivable condition. A Bristol Borough woman who made $30,000 in deposits on a $50,000 project that was never finished. At least the guy's consistent. Yeah, right? patterns great. Yeah. A false township man who hired the same guy for a $90,000 project that he abandoned after the victim made $54,000 in payments. Probably had enough money to go to Miami or whatever. Right? <laughs> yeah, take the money and run. Yep. And an upper Southampton township woman who paid him $24,000 for an exterior home project that he never performed. At the time he was charged, the investigation found that his company received contracts for work in Bucks, Montgomery, Philadelphia counties, and additional victims were located in Upper Southampton Township, Warminster Township, Lower Moreland Township, Pottstown and Montgomery County, and one victim in Philadelphia. This guy really We're gets guy. He's really working the circuit. Now you know how I feel as being a contractor trying to sell people jobs when they see all these problems going on. Bad contractors taking a lot of money. And then you and I have been doing this for over 10 years of trying to explain. If somebody's trying to shake you down for a lot of money up front, especially if the agreement is like not written very well. 
very, well, very crayon cloudy. Crayon and cocktail napkin yeah. is not a great contract to sign. Beware. Buyer beware. Because these people, if they were aware, they would never have done what they did. You know, I would love to get them on the air. Again, we don't have to mention any names, but just to ask them questions like, what were the deciding factors that made you sign with this contract? Or was it low well, price? Probably personable people. A little bit charismatic. They're certainly not gruff. They worm your way into your life and you get to trust them. And the next thing you know, you're writing a check. That's, that's the way it goes. Classic scams. But there's got to be a reason why they're still signing with these people and giving a lot of money. Where we've done shows, and I'm sure everybody knows that you want to give a large deposit here in the state of Pennsylvania, the max on special order items is 33%. You can't take more than that. I don't even do uh, my contract. We don't even take any money till the job starts. Even I ordered all the products. I'm the one that's taking the bigger risk. But the contract's written up that I'm going to be covered either way. But I want you to build trust up with me. That's where we've been so successful. Right. But I mean, I see it. it this is in the past two years the worst I've ever seen contracting. It's going to get worse. Not only with this, well, this one thing wasn't a contractor. This was a financial scam. Mm -hmm. As the technology improves and when AI really grabs hold here, it's going to get horrible because the bad guys have leveraged all this technology. It's not the good guys who are benefiting from the technology. It's the good guys are in peril now because of the technology. And it's going to make it difficult for contractors, as I said, uh, signing somebody because of this. Absolutely. Absolutely. So going to make it bad for the good guys, too. Hey, listen, I'd love to get people on just to get their take on this also. It's great to Crazy. hear from our listeners to understand you know, what are the, some of the reasons or why would they be signing with somebody asking for a lot of money? I mean, I, I always like to ask questions just to get an understanding so we can educate our listeners so not have it happen to them. That's what we like to do. Okay, and stick with us. Coming out of the bad guy bullet, we go to a very good guy and good friend of your valuable home, architect Ilya Azarov, and he's going to be talking to us about building to live off the grid. A lot of really good information in this. You'll probably want to do it after you hear Ilya's explanation of how it can be done. All right, we'll be back after we take a quick break. Hey, Kev, we've talked many times about the importance of curb appeal and the value quality products add to exterior home improvements. Provia fiberglass entry doors and vinyl replacement windows add that value. And for huge impact, curb appeal, and value, there's Provia vinyl and polypropylene siding. Yep, the super polymer formulation of Provia siding reflects heat and protects against UV rays and solar heat buildup for lasting color and value. Provia siding comes in traditional, insulated, and decorative profiles, all with the look and texture of real wood. People often stop and ask me about my Provia Cedar Max siding. I've actually gotten siding jobs that way. Okay, so how about colors and styles? My customers love the extensive palette of popular colors, including dark and bold hues. New colors for 2023 include Miss Gray, Harvest Red, and Pine. And Provia offers a wide variety of styles from clapboard to Dutch lap, board and batten, and new Harbor Mill shingle and shake siding. Harbor Mill is reminiscent of traditional rough sawn shingle and staggered hand-split cedar shake. Both profiles are modeled after genuine cedar pieces using highly accurate laser scanning to ensure all the detail and texture of real cedar wood grain. Harbor Mill siding was designed with the installer in mind, incorporating built-in features that aid in a more efficient, hassle-free installation. The lightweight rigid panels are easier to handle and include locks, guides, and marks for the installer. That makes for a quicker installation and beautiful curb appeal. Yup, and you can see it all and have the colors and styles work with Provia entry doors and vinyl replacement windows at Provia's fabulous website, provia.com backslash YVH. Check out Provia's design center on the website and experiment with their exterior home visualizer to see how all the different styles, colors of Provia doors, windows, siding, stone, and roofing work together. 
Once again, Provia delivers on its mission to serve by caring for details in ways others won't. Visualize the possibilities at Provia.com backslash YVH. Okay, Ron, it is time for the featured segment. I do believe we have a returning guest with a plethora of knowledge. We do. Well, as you know, I was in Palm Springs, California lately for Modernism Week, a celebration of all things mid-mod, particularly architecture. It featured mid-mod architecture in a Palm Springs version of the five-part YouTube video series. Great video. Coolest neighborhoods in America. This is the first time that I actually met the people who helped us develop the series, plus separate podcast on Palm Springs unique neighborhood groups. While there, I also had the experience of visiting two off-grid homes in nearby Joshua Tree for a deeper discussion of building for an off-grid lifestyle. We're bringing on internationally known architect and good friend of Your Valuable Home, Ilya Azarov. Welcome back again to Your Valuable Home. What does it mean to be entirely off-grid? Well, hey guys, it's great to hear your voices again. Yeah, off-grid. You know, so if you think about it, it's operating without any public utilities, water, electricity, wastewater is really what it means to be off-grid, that you are an island. And islandable is something we talk about in resilience, but your building, your home, it can operate all on its own without that outside help. That's really what it means to be off-grid. And you can go much further if you go into lifestyle, and we can discuss that. It seems like the Joshua Tree folks are trying to move that direction, growing your own food and all of those things. But if you're really think about the building it's really those public utilities that you're taking care of that yourself one of the guys that i talked to just bought 20 acres in joshua tree on the other side of the valley and he's going to build a development of off-grid homes in joshua tree what are the key elements of a successful off-grid home in terms of, i'm just going to fire away on these home size power source power storage heating and cooling water source waste removal and special building requirements e.g insulation those are all, all some of the, the key requirements like the home size you really want to find a balance a modest size home is something that you're really striking out for because remember all of your systems need to meet every square foot of that house. They need to meet the needs of of every square foot. So typically what you're going to find is a modest size, only what you need house. You can go beyond that, but that's basically where you would start. Now, in terms of power source, that really comes from many sources, but these are all renewable or self-generation, solar, wind, geothermal. Not so familiar in the U.S., but biogas, how you take care of your waste and turn it into energy. That's really your power source, but you balance that, again, with the home size and lowering your load requirements. With power storage, that is the key piece because, you know, we're going through ups and downs of the day, ups and downs of the season. So your power and battery storage are really important. So whether it's uh, power walls from Tesla or other types of battery storage, those are quite important. And then you really want to stay away from backup generators that rely on fuel oil. You want to look at something, maybe a solar generator, if you do get into some trouble, as other types of backup generation. Well, in terms of the water source, it depends on your location, but you can sink your own well. Uh, Rainwater harvesting and cisterns are a really good way to go in many parts of the country. You may have, in addition to a well or a, a water source that's secured. And how you store that water is really important. You want to have some kind of gravity feed storage if possible, so you don't have to use pumps and electricity to uh, keep moving your water. And then in terms of the heating and cooling, again, it depends on where you're located. You may need more cooling than heating or vice versa, depending on where you're located. But uh, we've talked on past shows about passive house and starting any of this conversation, whether it's modest house size, what you need to make the house operate, you start with this idea of passive house. And the strategies for passive house really get you into a place where you know what the good fit is for your site, the good fit for your location, and how you orient the house 
as well as really high standard for insulation. So when it comes to heating and cooling, your conversation starts at the very little energy you need for the heating and the very little energy you need for cooling. Then you can look at what types of things, whether they're heat pumps, whether they're other types of elements. So we can talk more about that. Well, geothermal would be a good idea, wouldn't it, for the heating? That's probably your best advice for uh, heating and cooling the house. I agree 100%. You know, the, I mean, the ground groundwater temperature for heating and cooling is comfortable. It's going to be cooler than the hottest part of the summer, and it's going to be warmer than the coldest part of the year. So it's a great baseline to, to start from, and it's readily available. There are a few places in the U.S. where it, it is not available based on the type or the ground below, but in most places it's available. The other thing about waste removal, we can talk briefly about that. But, you know, the funny thing is I was thinking about when you gave me a call and said we should talk about this. It's only been the last hundred years that we've gotten away from living off the grid. If you think about the 19th century farmhouse, when most of the U.S., most Americans lived on farms or rural areas, you had a self-sustaining, self-supporting off-grid home. So we have gotten to a point of reliance, and now we're rediscovering how you orient the house, how you use the land, and how you really build a better building and become self-reliant. So in terms of waste removal, this is a tough one, right? When you're absent a municipal sewer, there. It depends on your location, but what we've been moving towards in a lot of projects is to look at something like living machine or a biodigester, how you take the byproduct of waste and turn it into either energy or if you truly are going off the grid and investing into permaculture, then you should look at what a living machine is. A living machine is advanced ecologically engineered system. I know that's a lot, but there's a Dr. John Todd from many, many years back really researched and created this ideology of a living machine where you take the waste of what you do in your daily life, whether it's food waste, whether it's human waste, whether it's waste from your surrounding of your building, and you turn that into a product, a byproduct that can actually benefit the entire building or project or however it may be. There is a circularity to this that we've rediscovered. And bringing that into contemporary buildings today is something we should really be striving for as we reduce energy load across the boards and produce it ourselves. In terms of heating and cooling, could solar be a backup to geothermal? Could hydrogen be a backup to geothermal? Oh, yeah. And, and I would suggest, you know, from this, I'm going to put my resilience hat on. You don't want to rely on a single one. You definitely want to back up. So I love what you're asking. It's a multi-system something. So if you have geothermal, you definitely want to have some kind of backup, solar, wind, maybe even both, a little bit of both, to make sure you get a good energy profile that assists in those elements. I mean, to run your run your geothermal system and the heat pumps, you do, do need to produce some electricity. And so those two combine together or three systems combine together. Or as you mentioned, there's other systems out there that are advancing like hydrogen and others that are really promising. Everything you're talking about here is what I experienced in Joshua Tree that day. I went to two houses. One was 1,500 square feet. So everything you're saying about the size of the house. And the other one was 1,800 square feet, but they're mid-mod construction. So there's a lot of glass. They look bigger than they really are. It's the indoor-outdoor kind of feel of them. I mean, they really had it down pat. They had this control center in the in the kitchen and everything. A lot of battery backups, battery storage. And they said they've never had a problem with it. They had a little stove in the living room and never had a problem with it. I was there on a 102 degree day and it was really comfortable in that house. Joshua Tree, it gets pretty hot. It's high desert. I mean, desert. There's nothing around. But everything you're saying about what the ideal house would be was personified in these two properties. 
That's great to hear. I love to hear about good examples people can relate to. Well, you, when you talk about glass, now you were in California. Now think about somewhere in the colder. Now you can verify this, but if you have a lot of windows where it's a very cold climate, uh, no matter how great that window is, it's sure not going to be the two by six wall with R21 insulation in it. No, of course not. But remember we did the YouTube video? Philadelphia was a lot of mid-mod. So it can work yeah. you know, in a colder environment. But it's going to be a lot more electricity or geothermal is going to be pumping a little bit more heat out into that yeah, place because of, of the glass. So you, people have to be concerned if they're very concerned about if the unit's not big enough to house that much more power to need to generate with a lot more glass in a colder climate. Correct. People yeah. should think about that when they're starting to build You have to build, build to the, the climate. Yeah, Correct. Of course, yeah. Yeah, this was a good example. I mean, it really caught my attention and going to those two houses, and there were more to go to that day too. I just didn't have the time. I had to get back into Palm Springs. But everything you're saying about what they should be was manifest in those two places. Are off-grid homes permitted in all states? You know, that I'm not an expert on, but I do know that there's off-grid homes in every state, permitted or not. I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek about that, but off-grid homes, as I said, they predated the turn of the 20th century. And there are many, many folks that have moved that direction and a lot of places that must be off-grid just based on the lack of resources or the isolation or distance from other places. There are off-grid dwellings in every state of the U.S. and its territories. Do you see the coming of many off-grid developments around the country? I do for a couple of reasons. And, you know, there's, you know, down in, in the areas that are getting hit a lot by hurricanes and there's some areas of the country that are getting hit by other storms and, and whatnot. So that's one rationale. The other rationale is the way that we have centralized our power distribution and water distribution in the U.S. is highly inefficient. Power distribution is, is crazy. If you really look at the inefficiency of it, if you were an investor and you looked at an inefficiency in anything uh, and you saw those numbers, you would be aghast. It makes a lot of sense to make sure that your energy is produced as close to the end user, user as possible. And the difficulty is that transition. And right now, with the Inflation Reduction Act and a lot of the reinvestment in infrastructure, there's a move towards decentralizing and making more efficient the grid. And part of that is really getting at this idea of producing at least some of your own energy. So even if you're not going completely off the grid, the retrofitting your house, you're producing some of your own energy. And that gives you a high degree of resilience. It keeps your bills down. And it gives him surety in case of unsavory circumstances like disasters and shocks and stresses. So the market is, is moving that direction. I have clients that are asking for off-grid and islandable capabilities at every turn of a project. So it's taking market hold. I do see this is going to be a very major push, not just in the U.S., but in a lot of places. You got me thinking here. You know, your power source should be close to where you live, et cetera, et cetera. Wouldn't the same thing apply to your food source? It should be. We kind of learned that a little bit during the pandemic. The long supply chains that were based on you know, large producers to profit really kind of played into the fragility of our food distribution systems. A hyper-local or at least supporting much more locally based food production and less transportation, you know, that helps us all around. It keeps the carbon down on that type of food product, but you're also supporting local. And if you eat locally, if you talk to health experts, which I am not a health expert, but health experts extol the virtues of eating seasonally and eating close to home. I think that there's a lot of value in that, but economically, that is super valuable. And that kind of brings back to what I mentioned about permaculture. Probably some of the things you were looking at at Joshua Tree and some of the developments, people are really looking at how they are using land as part of that circularity, including food production, as well as energy production, waste management, all of those things. You know, it's ironic, isn't it? Started as an agrarian-based society, 
or country. And certain people are realizing that that's probably a good way to go. And they're going back that way again. Instead of centralized power, instead of far off food production, it's going back to the way people lived when they lived in that farmhouse, you know, and they took care of themselves and they were hardy and they were resilient. It's really wild. Life runs in cycles, doesn't it? It does. And now that we have these modern technologies of greater insulation, better windows, you know, we can actually achieve things that no one could achieve back then. We can achieve things that are sustainable and resilient. They play into equity and lower operational cost of your building. Are there any special code requirements for an off-grid home in terms of insulation? And I I would think you'd want to beef it up if you're in a, a hot area or a very cold area. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, for off-grid, you should be really looking at passive house, and we can talk briefly about that, but it depends on your jurisdiction. The big things you do have to overcome for off-grid are really about these things about energy production and storage and how you handle your waste. Usually the jurisdictions, you have to satisfy the jurisdiction on your plan to that process. And then for off-grid, what you want to do is to make sure that you are hitting the insulation values and numbers for thermal comfort year-round. And that is either a program for passive house and there are a number of those which does come back to the beginning of your question yes you do need to have some fairly serious uh, insulation requirements for the entire envelope and its operations and good air exchange when necessary right now at this point in time is solar the preferred way of powering an off-grid home Yes and no. I, I think it's the combination. You can't do one without other things. As was mentioned, the, for me, the wonderful combination is solar with geothermal, solar with something else. Because solar typically can't do it alone. If you have enough land that you can deploy more solar than what's on your roof system, or you've made such a tight house that has such low requirements, you could get by on solar with battery backup. But in my mind, you want to have the balance of at least two systems. Five cloudy days in a row will not help you (laughs) with solar. So you do have to have something that offsets that. Tesla and a few other companies manufacture Building Integrated Photovoltaics, BIPVs. What are the pros and cons of this way of collecting solar power versus solar panels that attach to a roof over the shingles versus solar trackers? Yeah, so the integrated photovoltaics, you know, there's a couple of things. The integrated ones that are fixed to your roof or become your roof envelope. You are less likely for any wind uplift or anything that occurs with high wind events and those type of things. Whereas a solar panel, you have to make sure that the attachments to your main wind force resisting system, your structural system of the roof is really taken care of because it's an added system rather than integrated system. Integrated systems to the envelope typically are more resilient. However, some of the downside might be is that, you know, solar panels do have a life cycle around 20 years. And if you look at their peak of performance and then they become less performative in their latter years, replacing those shingles over time is a little bit of a different cost than, say, a, a traditional panel. Now, when you talk about tracking systems, there's a couple of great things with that because you get the highest efficiency of the solar collection. It's always in its optimal or as optimal as possible to harvest energy from the sun. However, you do have a lot of extra moving parts. And you and I know that a lot of moving parts means a lot of potential problems. There are great solar trackers out there, and I'm not downplaying those. But from the resilience standpoint, high-performance solar trackers. From the resilience standpoint, it's the integrated photovoltaics, or it's a very robust system that is attached to the main force, wind force resisting system that has a good maintenance value on a 20-year cycle. So each of them have benefits, and each of them have a few negatives. It all comes to where where you're living. I would think that with solar panels, if you had a really 
bad wind event? Couldn't that wing get underneath between the, the roof and the solar panel and just lift those panels right off? Yes, it, it does. And there's a great set of engineering tools out there from the Society of Structural Engineers. They put out, I think, in uh, 2016 and again in 2020, specifically on solar panels, how you can attach them to your homes and to buildings. And if you follow that guidance and how the attachments are done very, very well, you will have very little problem in high wind events. And it's been proven out, unfortunately, during the recent storms in Puerto Rico uh, last year and this year and other places, but places that have followed that information with the same structural element you just talked about, by wind getting underneath the panels, they perform very well. So that's good news, that there's guidance out there. If you want to go that direction, you can make them resilient and robust. Can you explain passive house certification? So your audience knows there's two bodies in North America that currently certify Passive House. One is the Passive House Institute. The other one is the Passive House Institute U.S. And both of those have the same ideology. A passive house is one that has thermal comfort just by way of its envelope or the exterior of the house is really well done in terms of insulation, less air infiltration, all of those things. So their goals are the same. And the idea of this is, is that you can do this on your own, but typically you want to find a consultant, whether it's an architect, an engineer, or a builder that has done this before. And together you set your goals of your house size and your targets and goals for performance. Now, if you want to have a net zero house that all the energy I produce and all the energy I use come out to be zero. That's one goal you can have with Passive House. That's great. So once you set your targets and goals with that person, you go through energy modeling. The energy model informs the design. So you may have a very simple box or you may have a T-shape. And when you go through that energy modeling, that is, it really tells you how you can adjust that design to meet your goals of net zero or very low energy use. And once you have altered that, that's the point where the Passive House modeling certification comes in. You finish that model, you submit, and you get this um, sort of certification that says, if you build and test to this standard, then you'll get a certification. Now, a lot of folks can just build towards Passive House with the ideology of really high insulation in all of your exterior surfaces, roof, walls, great doors, great windows, and then do blower door tests and see if there's any infiltration throughout the house. And during construction, you take care of all of those little details so the house itself performs really well. Once you get through all that process of submitting the model, it gets approved. And during construction, you do this testing, as I mentioned, you're verifying the type of construction that was planned and you do these tests, you will get a certification at the end. And as, as I said, a lot of people can follow the ideology of Passive House, and you don't have to get the certification. You can go one way or the other. Your upfront cost for a Passive House is higher, no doubt about it. Off-grid house, it's higher. But your operation cost is so much lower, you get a, a return on investment and a surety that's great. And your resale value is proving to be in the marketplace much higher. How about efficient appliances and efficient heating cooling? They've got to be integral to the development of an off-grid home, right? Yeah, you're right on. Energy Star is sort of your minimum go-to for appliances and making sure that efficient equipment is part of that model to begin with. If, you, if you're going with inefficient equipment, then you probably will never hit the goals and targets that you want. And in off-grid, you really want to have super efficiency that keep your load down or the requirements for your load. What I mean load is your load for electricity and keeping that very, very low. And you know, one thing that we didn't mention about the Passive House, it's the site and the orientation of the building. So I'm sorry to digress, but I think this is really important. When you're asking about efficiency of appliances, think about your building as an appliance that you 
needs to be in its most efficient location. It's taking advantage of the wind, of the sun, and the exposure, so you don't have to turn your lights on. So you have natural cooling corridors that help you keep the building itself cool without turning on any of the mechanical equipment you've invested in it. Think about that 19th century farmhouse. They always would plant trees for windbreaks, the trees for shading, all of the things around your house to make sure that that whole site contributed to the thermal comfort and the comfort of the surrounding area. So those all play into it, in addition to the Energy Star refrigerator. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. The old and the new. I can't remember seeing one tree except Joshua trees in, in, in Joshua Tree. It's pretty flat, high desert, not a lot of vegetation around. Are there government incentives, whatever, under one of the two new acts that were signed into law in the last year or two to help with off-grid homes? Yeah, you know, you can take the things that are in both of these packages, the Infrastructure Act and whatnot, and depending on your state, in the state of New York, the governor wants to have 300,000 climate-ready homes, which means that thermal heat pumps, solar panels, all of these things are being reported as energy production and efficiencies to existing and new homes. And I think that's something you'll find in most states. So you can take what's in these incentives and support mechanisms for cleaner energy, better energy performance for buildings and apply that to an off the grid or just improve your own home to make it much more efficient. Better for your pocketbook in the long run, that's for sure. The homes I visit in Joshua Tree are powered by a lot of sunlight most of the year. Your firm, Plus Lab Architect, is currently working on an off grid home in Massachusetts. Hats off to you. Are you powering this home with solar and can it be as efficient as solar energy generation in a place like Joshua Tree? I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) I really hope so. We're really aiming for taking this building and going beyond net zero. We We want to produce more energy than we use. Our model is showing us we can get there. It's going to be tough, and it's under construction now. We use solar with battery backup. We've coupled that with really high passive house standard construction. And we want to make this as energy efficient as possible for this age-in-place home. The one wrench that we have in this is part of age-in-place. It's two stories, and we have it ready to go to add an elevator. Once the elevator gets added, say, in 10, maybe 12 years, when the couple that have hired us, they really want accessibility. They don't want to take the stairs any longer to the second floor. That'll throw our energy profile off a little bit, but we will still be extraordinary. We're moving at it, and this is an islandable house, so it's good. Per square foot, it would cost more to build an off-grid house than it would be to build a conventional house. Yeah, it does. Over time, your ROI is going to come back in in terms of power savings, this saving, that saving, right? It does. Think about it. If you go and you buy a car today and you put down more money on a car, an electric vehicle, let's hope, if you put more money down, then you're going to be paying less out per month. It's not a a perfect analogy, but people can relate to that. But if you put into your house, and it it does cost more, 10 to 12% more for a passive house on just about every passive house website. But an off-the-grid house really is in line with that. If you invest in that to begin with, you will see the benefits of that every month that you live there from the initiation of you walking in that door. And you'll see that your operations cost is so much less. The other thing is, is the reliability of that house, typically using that kind of material and robustness, your maintenance for that house is much less over time. So not just your operations, 
your windows are better than the other windows. Your roof is better than the other roof, which means your replacement timeline for major pieces of equipment and parts of your house, that timeline is pushed back by several years and sometimes a lot of years. So you factor all of those things in and you got to ask yourself, why are we not putting this way everywhere? Very good question. That's a good place to leave it. So everybody can think about that until you come on again. And you got, you're going to be on in a couple of weeks and we talk about efficient ways for millennials and other people who are get stuck like in the mud in this real estate market to get a house and live happily ever after. This has been wonderful. Every time you come on, you hit a home run with bases loaded. Thanks for having me, guys. It's always great talking to you guys. Man. It's just wonderful. Remember the name Provia, your single source for professional class, entry doors, storm doors, patio doors, vinyl and wood clad vinyl windows, vinyl siding, manufactured stone and metal roofing. Products made with latest technology and honest old world craftsmanship. The Provia way. That's this week's podcast. If you want us to share your home improvement project or horror story, email me at kevin at yourvaluablehome.net. That's kevin at yourvaluablehome.net. And don't forget to tell your friends and family about Your Valuable Home, the weekly podcast that's all about building wealth in residential real estate and hiring the right contractor to do the right job at the right price. 